Hi everyone, it's your host Mark Shapiro here. Before we begin today's episode, I think it's important that we discuss a tragic event that occurred this weekend. On July 27th, the story broke that Dr. Bongani Maiosi had committed suicide at the age of 51. Dr. Maiosi was a cardiologist who was born in South Africa. He trained and he practiced medicine in South Africa. He served as the Dean of the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Cape Town, and he was the Chair of Medicine at the University of Cape Town, as well as Skruitskir Hospital, which actually is where my father trained. He was part of a team that discovered the gene in a potentially lethal heart condition called arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia. He'd been published over 300 times, and he'd served as a counselor on health policy to the highest levels of the government of South Africa. He was a husband, he was a father, and actually he was a hero to the nation of South Africa and had been awarded the nation's highest civilian honor, the Order of Mapungubwe, in 2009. Dr. Maiosi is someone who, if there was a cult of celebrity in medicine, he would have been, he would have been an A-lister. He had on paper the life that we as physicians are really conditioned to think that we want. He'd been dean of a medical school. He was counselor to the parliament of his nation. He had accolades. He had publications. He was married. He had a family. It's sort of that same response that so many people had when Anthony Bourdain recently committed suicide, that he sort of had that perfect looking life. And on the surface, it would be easy to say that Dr. Maiosi is the last person that we would expect to be depressed, let alone to commit suicide. And his family was very transparent about both of these things in the public statement that they released to the press. And yet here we are, and that matters. Here we are. We are at risk. Physicians complete suicide at a far higher rate than the general public. We train in cauldrons where well-being and mental health are at the very bottom of any list of priorities. We do extremely stressful work at all hours of day or night. We see every level of human emotion. We see every part of a human body. We see every fluid, see every organ. We see all the ways you can imagine that somebody can suffer. Not only are physicians at risk for suicide, but that risk is growing. And the reasons for this are complex, and it's going to take a concerted effort to begin to turn the tide. But in the meantime, this is a real call. This is, this is an indicator that we need to be shoulder to shoulder to support one another. And I'm not just talking to other docs. If you're a patient and you think that your doctor is struggling, help them to get help. If you're a friend or a spouse or a family member to a physician and you think they need help or you think something is wrong, reach out to them. Cross the space and help them just like they're trying to help you. The global community really lost a medical titan this weekend to suicide and it has to stop. Hopefully the work that's being done by the guests that I have on the episode that's coming up can start to help. Maureen Bizzignano and the Wellbeing Trust are doing some really remarkable work around mental health and well-being. This episode was actually just recorded a few weeks ago and post-production was almost done when I heard the news. So I thought it was really important to talk about it. We're not just describing a problem here, but we're also hopefully beginning to frame a solution with this episode. Finally, before we start, if you feel like you need help, please reach out. Please get help. We want you here. We want to keep practicing medicine together. We want to keep doing great things together. So if you feel like you need help, please get help. The number for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. Call that number if you think you need some help and please get the help that you need. I appreciate you taking the time to listen and now on with Explore the Space. Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. My guest today is Maureen Bizignano. And Maureen is someone who I actually am 
thrilled to say I've had the opportunity to speak before. A couple of years ago at the Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting, she gave the keynote address. She has one of the more fascinating CVs, and and I'll let her kind of tell us some of the notable things that have happened. She's a nurse by training, but through that work, she has moved through some incredible different work opportunities. And, and now she finds herself as the chairperson of the National Advisory Council for the Wellbeing Trust. And it felt very fitting to have her come and join me on the podcast to talk about the Wellbeing Trust, to talk about the work that she's doing, to talk about why well-being should be such a focus for us. And you know, one of the ways that Maureen's been described in the past was as, quote, a tireless advocate for change. And that's, I think, in a lot of ways what we need right now, especially when we think about well-being individually, in communities, in teams, and as a country. So Maureen, <laughs> framing it that way, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Mark. I'm delighted to be with you. Let's start with the Wellbeing Trust as an entity because it's new, it's shiny, and I think we're still in that place where people are hopefully finding it or hearing about it for the first time. And my hope, obviously, is through this conversation, more people come to it. But give us a sense, just to begin with, foundational work, what is the Wellbeing Trust? Well, we got together um, some time ago, perhaps a year and a half ago, uh, to take a look at where we're at as a country, to take a look at where we are in communities and families. And what we found is that the diseases of despair, depression, anxiety, addiction, suicide, are in a place that I had never known. I, and as you said, I've had a long career in healthcare, starting in nursing, going to hospital administration, and then in the late 80s with Don Berwick founding the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And so I've worked globally on a number of healthcare issues throughout my long career, but I never really had a grasp of the pain and the toll that mental illness is taking on us as a society today. When we started to take a look at the magnitude of this problem, we came together and said, what could we do? And with the actual gratitude and, and generosity of the foundresses of the sisters of Provi the Providence and St. Joseph system, they were uh, the instigation to say, this is a problem that coming together we could solve. So we began to come together, take a look at the problem, and set out a challenge for ourselves. And that became the Wellbeing Trust. So when you sat down to start doing this work and drawing on your experience, and you realize that there's this vacuum there, where are the places that you start? It's such a huge problem. And I think obviously all of us on a societal level, there is an increased awareness of it. We are hopefully trying to wrap our arms around it, but we're really in the early stages of it. How do you even get a foothold on the issue of mental, social, and spiritual health at a national level? Well, first of all, I think we need to come together and acknowledge the extent of the problem. We've got about a quarter of people in the United States today who need help. That's physical or social or spiritual. And when we started to take a look at these problems, they, they're growing. They're, they're growing every day. And I think it really needs a different approach. This isn't a medical-only approach. The Wellbeing Trust came together to say this is a complex social problem which requires a variety of solutions, an ecosystem approach, if you will. 
So we began by looking at how do we embrace a whole person, a whole family, a whole community, and think about all of the assets that we all have, how do we bring them to bear on helping people through some of the really profound challenges that they're experiencing today. How does that work actually start out? Actually, I'm, I'm curious, and I want to get really granular. Is this like-minded people such as yourself? Were you, did you convene in a boardroom? Did you meet on a WebEx? How, do you, how does that even start? Because those are such broad strokes. Just getting the people together that can have that level of insight and pull those levers, these are obviously going to be people who are not – with a lot of free time or not, you know, otherwise without responsibility. How does that even start? It did start with convening. We brought yeah. together a group of very diverse people, people who didn't know each other, but all had a view, a link into this world. It was interesting. We had George Halverson, for example, um, former CEO from Kaiser Permanente, who's been doing incredible work on what he calls the three key years how do we get families to bond so that a child has a very strong relationship with a, an adult in those first three years and the impact that that has on the rest of their lives? We had Brenda Reese Brennan from Intermountain who's been working on integrating primary uh, behavioral health right into primary health care so that it decreases the stigma and increases the chances that someone struggling will will have a link to the medical profession. We had a group of a hundred or so people from very different backgrounds, including people who were suffering from mental illness themselves. And we spent a few days just saying, do we understand the problem deeply enough? And I would say we came out of the meeting with a very different perspective on the depth of the problems, the kind of focus areas that we might come together on. And where were the bright spots, not only across the United States, but in my travels with Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I travel around the world and I've seen some amazing programs coming together. So we came together, surfaced our knowledge, pooled our thoughts and our ideas, and came away with a strategy. Give us a sense. Give, give us the underpinnings of that strategy. And also, I'm curious about chronology. Where are we in terms of what year are, are, is this? Because I'm curious about when you, when you set the strategy and what year it was, obviously so much can happen. So much has happened in our country in the last couple of years. And it's this idea of, are we chasing a moving target? Is the strategy from when you initiated the same as the strategy now? Well, we are chasing a moving target. There's no doubt about that. But what we did when we came together about a year and a half ago now is we said, let's focus in on a couple of goals. The first one was easing access to care. People were telling us that getting care, uh, getting an appointment in an ambulatory setting took weeks or months, if not longer. And this is a situation that requires urgency. We also looked at access to the social determinants of health, because so many times it's something outside of the medical system that is holding someone back from health or healing. So we focused on access to care and, and social determinants. Then we took a look at the populations. We said, we've got to start with children. We've got to start with those first three years. And especially what we found a year and a half ago, and I think it's even more so true today, we found that teens and tweens are really having a very difficult time in making that transition to a vital adulthood. I think all of the social technology with its good is also creating some real problems in communication 
and some real barriers and some um, communication and relationship problems with teens and tweens. We looked at depression and social isolation. I can tell you, Mark, that before I embarked on this work, I didn't understand the physical impact of social isolation. I didn't understand what it was like for someone to be alone and the impact that that has not only on their physical health, but then on their utilization of the healthcare system as a result of that. We looked at addiction and substance abuse, as you might expect, and these numbers are growing. Really, it's heartbreaking for me. It was then a year and a half ago to understand the depth of the problem, and the problem is still uh, increasing every single day. So we talked about the need to create hope for people who had serious mental illness and to decrease the stigma. And those were kind of the major goal areas that we set out to, um, to work on together. You, in doing that work, I think if anyone was to say, what are the biggest challenges? It's, that seems really comprehensive. It seems so challenging, so difficult, and so fraught, but yet noble and correct. Do you have a sense of which will be the first one of these we're going to get good at? Which of these do you feel like there's momentum where we're starting to make it like you use the term, it's becoming a, where it becomes a bright spot, where it's now a, a place of strength as opposed to something that we're identifying as something where there's an urgent need. Have you, is there a sense of progress on one of those multiple fronts that you described? Well, there is a sense of progress and, and it's exciting. Of course, when you put all this down, it's daunting. Yeah, yeah. And yet, you know, I'm Irish. And so on IHI's wall, we have a saying and it says, um, and the old Irish adage is, when you come upon a wall, throw your hat over it and then go get your hat. <laughs> and that's how I feel about this yeah, problem yeah. is we can either be stopped by the walls or we can throw our hats over it and just go get the hats. And that's where we're at with this. So what we're seeing as an example is cl in the clinical transformation in the access to care is right now so many people are relying on emergency departments for mental health interventions. It's not right. It's not the right place for them. It's not right for people who don't have mental illness, who are in a room with many other people who are suffering. And it's not right for those patients. So we've got a collaborative going with nine leading health systems across the country. And they're working to think upstream. How do we understand why this person ended up here? How do we think about working upstream in the communities and clinical practices? How do we um, create a sense of, uh, of uh, proactivity as opposed to waiting until someone comes into the emergency department? I was recently um, last week in Denmark and I saw something there that I want to introduce to our group. Um, I saw a social ants, which is a social ambulance. They said uh, so many people who are calling emergency departments, 911, um, have mental health problems, not physical problems, and bringing them to the emergency department may not be right. So a social worker and an EMT who always saw themselves at these sites said, let's go out for coffee and sit down and make a list of all the people who we have high priority on caring for. And when they looked at the list, they were the same. So they said, we need a social ambulance, not an ambulance. And they got a vehicle and they started going out proactively to places where homeless people are, where people are using drugs. And what they're finding is that the intervention is completely different, but so effective. 
And what you just described is very similar to what we experience where I practice, where the infrastructure around mental health is not where it should be. And more and more people have to rely on the safety net of the emergency department. And what you described of the impact on the emergency department and the inpatient setting is absolutely correct. It's really difficult for the people who are who have mental health issues who are being admitted because of those issues. It's extraordinarily difficult for the other patients that are there. It's difficult for the staff. And it puts all of us in a sometimes what feels like a tenuous situation. And I think prioritizing that with innovative solutions is absolutely the right work. It, it, it certainly is. I mean, it's, it's so obvious when you see something like the social ants and talking to the EMT and the social worker about how different their work is when they look through that lens gives me great hope for a bright spot. Another one is our youth campaigns. Again, we're finding the stigma of mental illness is creating loneliness and separation. And so does, I will have to say, technology. It's making it difficult for a child to reach out and say, I'm having trouble. I'm being bullied at school. I'm afraid of failing. Um, I'm, I'm having domestic problems when I go home. There are so many situations, and we're seeing this on the rise in the United States, that these kids are, are feeling desperate and alone. So the youth campaign that we're working on now is working on using social media, using the heroes of young people to reach out and to say, hashtag be well, hashtag be heard, hashtag be there, and creating a movement in, in the San Francisco Bay Area to have this um, this campaign of be well, be heard, be there, um, demonstrated by people on the radio, people who are disc jockeys, um, is creating a different conversation among the kids. Be well, be heard, and be there. And, and I th- what we've already seen is about 90 million interactions on Facebook and in all different ways that kids communicate. But the idea is to say, take care of yourself. If you have a trouble, if you're having trouble, say something and, and to be there for everybody else. I, again, recently in Africa was looking at how they create happiness and joy there. And the, some of the early interventions that they're using are when you meet somebody whether it's for the first time or in an ongoing uh, sense in the community, reach out, put out your hand, smile, look into their eyes. It's that human connection that we need to build. And the kids are showing us that it's working. When you said 90 million, my eyes popped open. I did not expect the number to be that high already. But when, when you continue to describe it, it makes sense that this is something where you can probably generate some very real momentum, leveraging the repetitive motions of, you know, using Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, where people are used to doing that now to move this, move this conversation in a different direction. Are you surprised at 90 million interactions at this point? Or are you, was that where you kind of were, were expecting it to be? No, I'm old. I would never expect 90 million, <laughs> but I'm encouraged, I yeah, will yeah. say. Yeah, so for the rest of you that are doing this work, when you see that, is that, hey, let's go faster, let's go harder, this is working, or, hey, the, we're on the right track, let's let this coast and move to something else? We, we, we do it simultaneously, so yeah. we're with great joy watching the numbers increase, but we're also looking at other ways to interact. 
I was in uh, Northern Ireland recently, and I attended um, for a day a recovery college. I haven't heard about it here in the U.S., but again, a bright spot where when a person in Northern Ireland or other places in the U.K. is diagnosed with mental illness, then rather than having to go to the emergency department or wait months for an appointment, they, they're not even connected up with the healthcare system. They're given a brochure, a college brochure, and they enroll in college. And all of the courses in the college are things like building resilience, how to deal with uh, stress at home, how to get enough sleep. It's the, the whole comprehensive view of resilience, and it's how to deal with your bipolar disorder. They enroll in the college, they go to the college, and all the faculty are people who have experienced mental illness in their life. It gives them hope and an amazing sense of tools and connections between people and the impact. It was just breathtaking for me to see that. I get the sense in hearing these stories from you that one of the greatest assets that you are bringing to this project in particular is this ability that you have from the career that you've built over many years and from probably from opportunities that you've had and created for yourself, leveraging things that people are doing outside of the United States, Denmark, Ireland, and I'm sure that there's others. We're not just talking about how do we harvest the good work that we can do here, but let's, let's take this globally. We can connect so easily now. Was this an intentional choice by you? I, I need to go outside of the borders of the United States, or is this a natural progression for you to say, I just, I know people and I'm going to go where the experts are. Well, it wasn't intentional other than I, um, I have high CQ, curiosity quotient. <laughs> yeah. So whenever I'm out in the field, um, I, I usually say to people, take me to the place you're proudest of. And wow. it, it, yeah. because I would never say, could you have a recovery college? I wouldn't yeah. know to, right, but I say, right. take me to the place you're proudest of. And in doing so, I have found, um, incredible, um, experiences that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Uh, I do think the word you used, harvesting, is critical. And I think we need to look at mental illness and resilience, well-being, as much bigger than the healthcare system. And that, that means that outside the, health, outside the United States, we, we're going to find some wonderful examples. In Jersey, in England, as an example, a small island where the population is elderly and often lived alone, what they found is that the elderly people were going to their primary care doctors very frequently or going to the emergency department. And they said, it's social isolation. It's the impact of social isolation. So they said, what assets do we have in the community that we might call on? And do you know what they came up with? The mailmen. They said, the mailmen go to people's homes every day and typically just dropped the mail and left but they trained the mailmen to uh, assess patients for frailty or depression. They don't go in, but three times a week, they'll knock on the door and they'll have a 10 or 15 minute conversation with people. And the people are so excited. They'll get all dressed up, like put their lipstick on the mailman's coming wow. today. That's, and it becomes an occasion. Exactly. And the mailmen are taught to assess gay um, frailty. <laughs> they say, do you have enough medication? Do you have food? And that social interaction is changing everything. It's not only changing life for the elderly, 
it's giving meaning to the mailman. And so we're trying to bring that to the United States. Yeah, sure. The mailman must have a sense of purpose beyond anything they could have ever dreamed of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. That is the most wonderful (laughs) idea. Now, as you keep finding these, is it hard to translate them into implementation here? Do you get resistance when you bring an idea like that back? We're going to use people who deliver the mail to become – you know, social connective tissue and to do well-being assessments. When you try to bring that back to your, to your team and when you try to implement it, is there pushback to something like that? There's always pushback. I think, um, in the United States, we, we tend to, um, have a tougher time harvesting from outside the country. Um, but even, even, even sharing within a, a one healthcare system, I find that the idea of spread isn't, easy. And I'm trying to teach that, to teach healthcare leaders that it's our professional obligation, I think, to close that gap. If we're doing something somewhere in the country that's producing the triple aim, better health, better care at a lower cost, it's our professional obligation to import that idea and to bring it into our system. We do have great examples within the United States up at... um, South Central Foundation in Alaska, the NUCA program is really profound on building on relationships. When any new employee starts up there, the CEO, Catherine Gottlieb, in the, their first week has a, an all-day retreat with them where she focuses on relationships. Now, to have the CEO meet with every new employee and talk about relationships is unique, and it works. It's producing a culture up there that says, I, I'm not alone, you're not alone, and together we'll, we'll produce better health. Taking all these ideas in, right, I can imagine that as the momentum builds, your email inbox is going to be filling, your social media feeds are going to be filling with ideas and concepts and things. As you look, right, the Wellbeing Trust, this is, this is longitudinal work. This is not done in another year. What are the strategic goals at the three-year mark, the five-year mark, the 10-year mark? So we're looking at um, clinical transformation. We're looking at in five years' time, do we have examples of where the health system is performing in a completely different way, where the health system isn't just accepting people into the ED, but is actually going out into the community and really thinking about prevention we're looking at transforming the healthcare system to prevent mental illness and to build uh, social trust and well-being. We're also looking at transforming the communities. We've been working with uh, a set of communities around the country, and as IHI has with the 100 million healthier lives, what we're finding is when we get out into the community, there are assets there, like the mailman. Um, like many other organizations, but in the past, they've tended to work in isolation. And so in five years time, I would say we'll have examples of communities that come together and are acting in completely different ways in synchrony to build well-being and to build resilience to prevent mental illness. We're looking at policy and advocacy. I'd say in five years time that we're hoping that the healthcare system won't only be paid for um, people getting cared for in a hospital, but that will have a, a very different sense of policy and that will have people advocating very publicly across the country to make uh, mental illness and well-being high priorities across the country. 
That's we're looking good. at social engagement. I think in five years' time, I'm hopeful that people will reach out their hand and look into someone's eyes and smile, just like they're teaching us in Africa, because it is the way to build those relationships like Nuka in, in Alaska. I think there's some really interesting parallels with that work that you are doing and the strategic work that you look at with the opioid epidemic. And actually one of the more recent guests I had on the podcast was the author of a book called Dreamland, Sam Quinones. And it's a wonderful book. Amazing book. Amazing, amazing book. book. Absolutely. And one of the things that he talked about when he and I had the chance to speak was the way that communities are beginning to address the opioid epidemic is exactly what you just described. Unique community-based solutions where they then begin to share, for lack of a better term, best practices. And it actually ended our conversation with a note of optimism. If you can believe that talking about the opioid epidemic, that that's where the optimism comes from. I think it's so heartening and wonderful that the well-being trust is going to leverage that same grassroots community enthusiasm for how do we tackle these things together, looking each other in the eye and shaking each other's hand when we meet, how do we begin to build from there? That really feels like the right way to do this. You know, the other thing that, that I think that makes me feel hopeful is integrating what you just described, the, the, the assets of a community with quality improvement tools. I think when you learn how to test your way into a better system, I think I feel hopeful that we can deal with some of the opioid uh, problems in communities. I feel hopeful that we can redesign emergency care and, and install um, care in the community. It, it's, it's so encouraging. I was in... Um, in Sweden and went to a, a program called Passion for Life. And again, it's elderly people who live alone, who would feel a great sense of isolation and became ill because of that, who come together and they were taught quality improvement methods. And to sit in that room, the Passion for Life room, and hear elderly people saying, I'm doing a PDSA, a plan, do, study, act on my, um, my gate so I won't fall, or I'm doing a PDSA on building stronger relationships with my neighbors, giving them the tools um, in Bellin, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, giving students the tools of quality improvement is changing the way that they look at themselves. They're not helpless anymore. They can improve their way out of any circumstance, and that gives me great hope. We're going to take this message of hope. We're going to take this idea that this is a huge project, that this is longitudinal work, but that that fire and enthusiasm and this ability to harvest great ideas and bring them forward is going to carry it. It's going to drive it forward. And as people want to learn more about the well-being trust, because you are new, right? Year and a half old, we're still in the phase of making sure people know that this exists so that they can begin to participate. How do people find the well-being trust? Well, you can go on to um, wellbeingtrust.org, which is uh, the website that, um, that, that will link you to all of these resources and tools. And um, you can join the movement, hashtag be well, be heard, be there. And I guess I would say that my ask of you all is to take care of yourselves. I always say you can't give what you don't have. And as worried as I am about the state of mental illness in our country, I'm really worried about burnout in the healthcare system workforce. And I know that if we reach out and we take care of each other, if we reach out and take care of ourselves, 
we'll be in a much better place to deal with the challenges that we all face today. I agree with you. The, the maxim that I learned when I was a medical student was you have to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. And I think that it's important whether you're on call overnight working 30 hours or you're experiencing burnout that you have to look inward and make sure that you get the help that you need. So this is noble work. And, and I'm so excited to be able to have this conversation with you and we all get to watch the Wellbeing Trust go forth and do this work and we all get to participate. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, Maureen, for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please feel free to share this episode. Please go to iTunes or the Google app for podcasts and uh, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps out the show. Feel free to email me with any feedback and we will see you all soon. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.